Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. The case we have for you today has been haunting people for over 80 years and is one of my personal favorites. It has never been solved and most likely never will be. One young man with secrets he took to the grave has captivated mystery lovers for generations. Come with us as we dive deeper into all of the twists and turns and so many unanswered questions. In the early afternoon of Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935, an attractive, well-dressed young man strolled through the lobby of the Kansas City, Missouri President Hotel. He appeared to be in his early 20s, with brown hair, dressed in a nice black overcoat. He had a noticeable scar on the side of his head and significant cauliflower ear, leading the hotel staff to speculate that he might be a boxer or professional wrestler. The man asked for a room, specifically an interior room, away from the street, and it had to be several floors up. He gave his name as Roland T. Owen and showed documentation stating he was from Los Angeles, California. He paid up front for one night and was shown to room 1046, an interior room on the 10th floor, by one of the bellhops. As they made their way to the room, Roland rambled on about the ridiculously high prices for a nearby hotel called the Mulbach Hotel. He complained that he had stayed there the night before, but he couldn't bring himself to continue to pay $5 a night. $5 in 1935 would be almost $100 a night today. Bellhop Randolph Proft found it strange that the man didn't have any luggage. When they arrived at the room, Roland unpacked what seemed to be his only belongings, a hairbrush, a comb, and toothpaste, which he pulled from the pockets of his overcoat. After unloading his pockets, Roland followed Randolph out of the room and left the hotel. Though the man's behavior struck the hotel staff as odd, they didn't think too much of it. After all, that particular hotel hosted a lot of out-of-towners and businessmen looking for some quick late-night company. The hotel staff tried not to get too involved. That is very odd. I would almost assume he's there for a good night with a sex worker. Also, I used to work front desk at a hotel graveyard shift, and if someone suggested a specific room, they were always up to something. Yeah, he definitely seems weird from the very beginning. It sounds like that wasn't that unusual for this hotel, though. Yeah, and then again, he could be perfectly fine and just be the guy that travels light. Girl, the next morning, a hotel maid named Mary Soptic was making her rounds when she walked into room 1046 and was startled to find a man sitting in a chair in the corner with the shades drawn and the lights off except for one dim lamp. She apologized and started to back out of the room, but he told her it was fine for her to continue, but he asked her not to turn the lights on. He continued to just sit there, staring at the wall. Mary said he seemed scared or worried about something, but she busied herself with cleaning the room as quickly as she could. After a few minutes, Roland stood up, brushed his hair, and left, asking her to leave the room unlocked because he was expecting some friends to be arriving shortly. She did as he asked and left. At 4 p.m., Mary returned to the room with fresh towels. 
and when she entered the still dark room, she was surprised to find Roland back in the room already and lying on the bed fully clothed. Next to the bed on the nightstand was a note that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Mary was a little creeped out by this guy, so she left the towels and hurried out of the room. The next morning, January 4th, Mary went back to room 1046 at 10.30 a.m. to clean the room again. The room was locked from the outside, so she sighed in relief thinking he was out and she could clean in peace. But when she unlocked and entered the room, Roland was still there, fully clothed, lying on the bed with the lights off. Mary started to clean as quickly as possible, but when the phone rang, she couldn't help but eavesdrop on the strange man's conversation. Roland answered the phone, and Mary tried to seem disinterested as she listened closely to his side of the conversation. Roland replied, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. Then more forcefully, he said, No, I'm not hungry, and hung up the phone. After he hung up, he suddenly seemed to notice Mary. He started questioning her about her job at the hotel. He asked how many rooms she was in charge of. He asked if the hotel is a residential one. And if so, what kind of people lived at the hotel full time? He then started complaining again about the high prices of the nearby hotel that he had previously stayed at. Mary answered his questions and quickly retreated from the room. As she was closing the door behind her, it dawned on her that for the door to have been locked from the outside while he was still inside on the bed, someone else had to have locked him in. Maybe that Don guy locked him in. It would explain why he asked if he wanted food. However, it doesn't sound like he was trapped there because he could have easily walked out when the maid came in. I completely agree. He wasn't acting like he was being held captive, but that's still so strange. I mean, hotel rooms worked differently back then, so being locked in from the outside would be so dangerous. What if there was a fire? He'd be trapped. I guess he'd have to push his luck and jump out that window. (laughs) I don't envy hotel maids, though. They deal with some crazy-ass stuff. It's true. Mary returned again around 4 p.m. to drop off fresh towels, but paused at the door hearing two male voices talking inside. When she knocked, a rough voice she didn't recognize asked, who is it? When she explained that she was the maid and had towels for the room, the voice responded aggressively, we don't need any. Mary hesitated outside the room, unsure what to do. She had personally taken all of the towels out of that room to be cleaned earlier that day, so she knew there were no towels left in the room. There was nothing she could do if they didn't want towels, so she left. That afternoon, a woman named Jean Owen checked into the hotel after an exhausting day of shopping in the city. She hadn't planned to stay in the city that night, but was just too tired to travel all the way home. They put Jean in room 1048, right next to Roland's room. Her boyfriend worked in a flower shop not far from the hotel, so he stopped by around 9.20 p.m. and stayed with her for about two hours. The couple heard loud voices, both male and female, shouting and cursing at each other for hours. Jean thought about calling the front desk to complain, but decided to mind her own business. She couldn't be sure where it was coming from. There was also a party going on in room 1055, and she didn't want to ruin anyone's fun. Outside the hotel, at 11 p.m., 
Robert Lane, a local city worker, was flagged down by a man wearing only an undershirt, shoes, and pants. Robert was just trying to get home, but it was pouring down rain and the man looked distressed, so he stopped to help. Robert took the man around the block where he could flag down a taxi. He said the man seemed on edge, and when Robert asked if he was okay, the man said, I could kill someone tomorrow. Robert noticed the man was holding his arm, which had a long gash down the side. He thanked Robert as he got out of the car and waited for a taxi to come by. Robert shook his head and continued on home, thinking to himself how weird the city was getting these days. Okay, when someone mentions murder, don't take that lightly. I think it's weird that this Robert guy pulled over to pick up a random stranger off the street in the first place. The 30s was such a trusting time, it seems like. It makes you wonder, though, if Roland and the guy Mary heard in his room were fighting and the guy Robert picked up is the Dawn person. It's possible Roland is the one that cut that man's arm, like during a fight or something. It's very possible. I don't know if I would say anything to hotel staff either, though, unless I heard threats or heard someone being assaulted during an argument. That's true. The night of January 4th was an unusually busy one. Elevator operator Charles Blotcher began his shift at midnight and was fairly busy bringing people to and from the 10th floor for the party happening in room 1055. Early on in his shift, a woman he knew to frequent the hotel visiting male guests in their rooms, he called her a commercial woman, requested to be taken to the 10th floor. She confided in him that she was on her way to a client in room 1026. However, about five minutes later, his elevator was called back to the 10th floor where he found the woman confused because she couldn't find her client and she wondered aloud whether she had gotten the room number wrong. She said she checked room 1026 and room 1046 just in case, but no one answered either door. She decided to check again and spent the next half hour on the 10th floor before finally going back down to the lobby. An hour later, Charles picked up the same woman again from the lobby, but this time she and another man got off on the ninth floor together. At 4.15 a.m., he took the woman from the ninth floor back down to the lobby where she left the hotel. Only 15 minutes later, Charles picked up the man she had been with and took him to the lobby as well. He told Charles he couldn't sleep and he was going out for a walk. The man left the hotel and, according to Charles, did not return at any time during the rest of his shift that night. Okay, I'm not totally convinced they were up to anything bad. He probably just wanted to go out for the night. It's possible that it was totally innocent. I mean, if she couldn't find her client and some guy buys her a drink in the lobby bar and invites her up, she's not going to turn down the money. I don't know anyone that goes for a walk at 4.30 in the morning, though, but it's possible. I sure don't. So what happened on the next shift? Well, on the morning of January 5th, a new switchboard operator, Della Ferguson, arrived at the hotel just in time for her shift. She began making her morning wake-up calls and noticed that the indicator light for room 1046 was on, suggesting that the phone was off the hook. After a while, she realized that the light hadn't gone off and the phone hadn't been in use. So she called down to the front desk and asked the bellhop Randolph to go ask the guest to hang up the phone. It was 7 a.m. when he got to the room, and despite there being a do not disturb sign on the door, he knocked a few times and heard a quiet voice say, come in, turn on the lights. Randolph tried the door, but it was locked, so he knocked a few more times, but no one came to open the door. 
Frustrated and assuming the man must be drunk or something, he yelled through the door, put the phone back on the hook, and went back downstairs. Over an hour later, around 8.30 a.m., Della called back to the front desk to complain that the phone was still off the hook in room 1046. This time, another bellhop named Harold Pike grabbed the master key and went up to the room himself. He knocked on the door, but no one answered, so he let himself in. With only the light from the hallway to see, he noticed Roland was laying in bed naked and probably passed out drunk. He noticed the bedding around Roland was darkened like it was wet and didn't envy the cleanup Mary would have on her hands. Harold then saw the phone stand had been knocked over. He quietly picked it up and put the phone back on the receiver and left. He noticed the bedding was wet with a dark liquid and nothing sinister crossed his mind? If he thought the guy was drunk, he probably thought he wet the bed and didn't want to have to deal with it. It was probably too dark to see that it was like blood or something. I mean, that's not a normal sighting to see when you walk into someone's hotel room. (laughs) At least make sure the man is breathing. You've got a point. (laughs) At around 1030 that same morning, Della called the front desk to let them know that the phone in room 1046 was yet again off the hook. Randolph agreed to go this time and marched up to room 1046, ready to give this guy a piece of his mind. Randolph didn't bother knocking this time and just let himself into the room. When he entered the room, Roland was within two feet of the door, naked and on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. Randolph turned on the lights and looked around the room. Blood was everywhere. The walls, the bed, the bathroom, even the ceiling. Out of instinct, he put the phone back on the hook before running downstairs for help. A few minutes later, he returned with the hotel manager, but they struggled to get the door open. Roland had fallen forward and was now crumpled against the door. They yelled for him to move away from the door, and he was eventually able to scoot far enough away for them to get the door open. Randolph and the manager helped the man to his feet, and only then they noticed he was tied up. They helped him to the bathroom where they sat him on the edge of the tub and called the police. As they waited for police, they realized that he had likely been trying to call for help all morning, but couldn't get any further than knocking over the phone. He should have been helped the first time around. That poor man. He kept trying to grab the phone and just kept knocking it over, and no one bothered to ask if he needed something. Not even once. That's not something you find every day working at a hotel. No way. Sham will tell us all about the investigation into what happened to Roland when we come back. Amazingly, Roland was still alive when the police arrived. As detectives cut the cords from his wrist, ankles, and neck, they asked him who had done this to him. He responded, nobody. I fell and hit my head on the bathtub. The detectives knew it wasn't possible. Blood was splattered everywhere. This man had been badly beaten and viciously tortured. Why was he trying to protect the person who had done this to him? They never got another chance to ask, though, because Roland lost consciousness on the way to the hospital and died later that night. When doctors performed the autopsy, they determined the injuries had occurred six to seven hours before he was discovered. That means the crime occurred between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. that morning, well before the bellhop's first trip to his room. The autopsy showed there was deep bruising on his neck, as though someone had attempted to strangle him. In his chest were multiple stab wounds, including one above his heart, which had managed to puncture one of his lungs. 
His skull was also fractured on the right side, seemingly from an array of blunt force trauma. It was ruled that he died as a result of his injuries. That's overkill. The several different ways he was attacked really makes it seem like he was being tortured for information or something. Why did he cover for his attacker? He had an opportunity to identify the person to police, and he tried to convince them it was an accident. Seriously? He was tied up and blood was on the ceiling, for God's sakes. Maybe the killer threatened his loved ones? He was clearly terrified of whoever it was. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. What evidence did the police find? Back in the hotel room, detectives were baffled. Not by what they found, but rather by what they didn't find. There were no clothes in the room, not even the ones he had been wearing when he checked in. There was no soap, shampoo, towels, or any other amenities usually provided by the hotel. The brush, comb, and toothpaste the bellhop had seen Roland unpack when he arrived were also missing. There was also no knife, confirming that this was not a suicide. What they did find was a necktie, a woman's hairpin, a safety pin, and an unsmoked cigarette, and a small unopened bottle of diluted sulfuric acid, as well as four small fingerprints on the receiver of the phone, which police believe had belonged to a woman, but were unable to match it to anyone at the hotel. The Kansas City Police Department started interviewing other guests of the hotel. They started with Jean Owen, whose identical last name and room immediately next to the dead man struck them as interesting. She told them what she heard the night before, and her boyfriend came to the police station and corroborated her account, so she was released. When they didn't get any helpful information from the guests at the hotel, they reached out to the media for help. They asked the press to run the story on the front page the next day and made it clear they were requesting information regarding the homicide. To confuse this case even further, detectives discovered that Ronald T. Owen never existed. In an effort to contact his family, they contacted the LA Police Department, but they had no resident by the name of Ronald T. Owen. Detectives learned from the bellhop that the man had complained about the prices of the Molbach Hotel, but no one had checked in under the name Ronald T. Owen. Detectives gave the hotel a description of the man, though, and that's when they learned that at the hotel he had given the name Eugene K. Scott, but the same L.A. address. Eugene K. Scott was also an alias, but the police discovered that he had also recently stayed at the St. Regis Hotel in town with another man, but both had given fake names to the hotel as well. Police also tried to look into the mysterious Don person, but found nothing. This is so crazy. Can we just talk about the fact that all of his belongings were gone? Like, even the clothes he was wearing that day. Someone took all of his stuff and all of the hotel amenities, but forgot their bottle of sulfuric acid. Out of all the things, someone wanted him to be unidentifiable, in my opinion. Someone was using him like a puppet. And it turns out he's using fake names. Maybe he's a spy or something. Possibly. And that would explain why he packed light. Maybe someone followed him there and caught him. He definitely seemed to be hiding. This is wild. Kansas City was now dealing with a nameless young man who had been brutalized behind locked doors by a faceless monster. Desperate for any leads they could get, the police took the investigation to the media again and tips started to roll in. A week into the investigation, Tony Bernardi, a wrestling promoter from Little Rock, Arkansas, viewed the body. He said that the man had identified himself as Cecil Warner and approached him around the beginning of December of 1934 about participating in some wrestling matches. 
Tony had referred him to another promoter in Omaha, Nebraska. Cecil was just another fake name, and the lead led nowhere. None of the tips called in turned up to be a viable lead. Eventually, two new homicides in the city drew detectives' attention away from the case. The mysterious young man's case ran cold. With no name and no way to contact any family, the city made the decision to bury the young man in a potter's grave. His body was laid in a morgue for more than two months, and no one had successfully managed to identify him. His body was even placed for viewing at a local funeral home, and more and more people started reaching out to the police, hoping it was their missing loved one. But in the end, no one could claim him. In a final attempt to inform anyone who may know the victim, the funeral published the details of his funeral in the newspaper, which resulted in a bizarre phone call. Okay. So for those that may not know what a potter's grave or pauper's funeral is, it's a place for the burial of unknown, unclaimed, or extremely poor people who don't have any family that can pay for a funeral. So it's basically just a field where people are buried with a very simple marker, no headstone or anything like that. Well, that's really sad. It's technically a grave for Jane Doe's. Right. And it's still a thing today. Okay, so tell me about this bizarre phone call. Well, shortly after the announcement in the newspaper, the funeral home received an anonymous call telling them to hold off on the burial and he would send them money needed for a proper funeral at the Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City. The funeral home director agreed, but told the mystery caller that he would have to inform the police about the call. The man on the phone didn't seem to care and even continued on in more detail. The funeral home director asked the man what had happened and the caller said, and I quote, he had an affair with one woman while engaged to another. Cheaters usually get what's coming to them. End quote. According to the caller, the two women in the caller themselves had arranged a meeting with the man in order to get revenge. Before hanging up, he explained that he needed time to get the money to the funeral home, but he wanted the body to be buried near his sister. As requested, the service was postponed, and on March 23rd, the money for a new funeral arrived. It was delivered in a plain envelope with an address which had been carefully written. Inside, wrapped in a newspaper, was $25, which is equivalent to $500 in today's money. There was no indication of who the sender might be. On the same day, another envelope containing $5 was also sent to the local florist. It was arranged that 13 American Beauty Roses, along with a card that said, Love Forever Louise, would be placed on his grave by the funeral home. Police attempted to track the calls and the envelopes, but had no success. Their leads led them back to payphones and disguised handwriting. Undercover detectives hung around the gravesite during the funeral and a few weeks after, hoping the anonymous caller would visit the grave, but no one came. This case just gets weirder and weirder. This person either knows the man's real identity or is mistaking him for someone else. Or they're crazy. I have a feeling they know exactly who he is. I mean, they had to have seen the sketch of him. Did police ever figure out who Roland really was? Images of the dead man continued to be circulated in national newspapers in the months after his death. In 1936, these images made their way to Birmingham, Alabama, in the eyes of Ruby Ogletree, who recognized the man as her son. Artemis Ogletree was born in Florida in 1915 as one of three children. When he was young, he was playing under his mother's feet in the kitchen when some hot grease spilled on his head above his left ear. It left a large scar on his head and no hair would grow there after that. 
The family had not seen Artemis since he had left Birmingham at the age of 17 in 1934 to hitchhike to California. He had dreams of becoming a professional wrestler, and Ruby had supported his desire to make his way out west. He kept them updated on his progress and adventures by writing them letters, and they wired him money whenever he needed it. The oddest part for Ruby was that she had received three letters from her son in the spring of 1935, but she now knew they were delivered after his death. She had been suspicious of the letters, even at the time, because they were typed, not written, and Artemis didn't know how to type. She also explained that the tone of the letters was slangy and unfamiliar. The first was received in early 1935 and was postmarked in Chicago, with another arriving a few months later from the same place. The last place she knew Artemis was staying was Chicago, so that at least made sense. These letters claimed that Artemis had decided to make his way to Europe instead. In August of 1935, Ruby received a letter and a phone call from Memphis, Tennessee. The caller claimed that her son had saved his life and after moved to Cairo, Egypt, where he married a rich woman and was thriving in the sun. She stayed on the phone with the man for half an hour while he rambled irrationally on and on. She didn't believe his story, but he did seem to really know her son and had clearly spent some time with him at some point. Wait, he was just a teenager hitchhiking across the country? What did this kid get himself into? He had to have run into somebody and made a bad deal. Someone went to a lot of trouble to convince his family that he was still alive. I have so many crazy theories of what could have been going on running through my head, but I know we narrowed it down, so walk us through it. All right, here we go. What really happened to Roland, Eugene, Artemis, or whatever you want to call him? Theories have run wild over the last 80 years, despite the lack of suspects. I'm going to walk you through a few of these theories, and you can let me know what you think. The first theory is that Artemis was manipulated by a serial killer calling himself Don. It suggested that he convinced Artemis that someone was after him and he was the only one that could help him. This theory would explain why he was switching hotels so often and giving fake names. It also explains why he wanted an interior room on an upper floor and seemed afraid. It would also explain the phone call from Don and how he was locked in the room from the outside, but it doesn't explain why he protected his killer when the detectives asked him who had done this to him. This theory actually made some headway in 1937. New York City police arrested a man named Joseph Martin on a murder charge after he killed a man he roomed with and put the body in a trunk to be shipped to Memphis. Among the several aliases he was found to have used was Donald Kelso. According to the story about the case in The New Yorker, Kansas City detectives matched samples of his handwriting to the letters written to Ruby Ogletree. But in the end, no charges were filed against him for this case. Very interesting. This one actually seems quite possible. And we have seen other cases where serial killers manipulate their victims before killing them. Maybe he didn't give the name of the guy that turned on him because by the time he was talking to the detectives, his head had already been bashed in, and maybe he wasn't thinking clearly. It would explain a lot. Don likely kept him locked in the room, pretending to be his protector, and that's why he would go as far as feeding Artemis. Could have also been a case of holding him hostage by manipulation. This theory is high on the possibilities list. What else do we have? The next theory is based on an anonymous call to the funeral home. If the caller is to be believed, then Artemis was killed for being unfaithful to his fiancée. 
Less reputable newspapers of the time sensationalized this story as an alleged soap opera. There was no evidence that Artemis was ever engaged, and the person or people that paid for the funeral and flowers never identified themselves, so it's nearly impossible to prove. It's suggested that the commercial woman seen wandering around the 10th floor the night he was attacked and the man she came back up with were the killers. The claim that she couldn't find her client and she picked up a new guy in the lobby could have been building an alibi. A woman being involved would explain the hairpin and small fingerprints found in the room as well. This was the media's favorite theory at the time, but still, no one was able to prove it. Okay, sure. This one is possible. But you would think he would have told his mom if he was engaged. He was a teenager trying to become a star wrestler. I don't know. This one just doesn't feel right to me. I find it very odd that she even explained what she was doing to the bellhop on the way to the 10th floor anyways. It's not every day someone in the sex industry openly shares that information with strangers. And one of the letters he wrote his mother would have definitely included him falling in love and the name of his partner. Very true. We have one more, right? Yes. The final theory may seem like a bit of a stretch, but hear me out. Back in the 30s, you didn't pay for your hotel up front. You paid when you checked out. Unlike today where you give a credit card to keep on file when you check in, it was pretty easy to skip out on paying your bill. There was a scam drifters would run, where they would give a fake name, stay a few days, then leave the hotel without paying and check into a new hotel under a different name. This would explain why he had no luggage, as it's easier to walk out a hotel without paying if you don't have any bags to give you away. We know that before Kansas City, Artemis spent some time in Chicago, because his mother confirms that that was the last place she talked to him. So what if he pulled this hotel scam in Chicago? and the hotel he skipped out on was owned by the mob. In the 30s, the mafia was still very active in Chicago. Al Capone had already been arrested, but Frank Nettie wasted no time in taking over. Frank wouldn't have been able to let some kid pull one over on him while he was still building his name as the new boss, so maybe he sent someone after Artemis. The Chicago mob was known for creative uses of sulfuric acid, which if you remember, a bottle of sulfuric acid was found in the room after the murder. Police even considered this theory because Don is a common nickname for a mafia boss. Maybe Artemis was trying to work out an arrangement, but wasn't able to pay, and they made an example of him. This one is totally out there, but I love it. It's got all the makings of a great movie. Honestly, I'm surprised no one ever made a movie off this case. This one's wild. I think people were just fascinated, though, by the mafia at this time and ran with it. Yeah, maybe, but it's still fascinating. Did any other evidence ever come to light over the years? Well, every year since 1935, new detectives have taken a look at this case and tried to make sense of the evidence. To this day, questions continue to circle around this mystery. No suspects were ever identified, and no killers were ever brought to justice. In 2003, John Horner, a local historian at the Kansas City Public Library, received a call from someone who said that they had been helping to clean out the belongings of an elderly person who had recently died. They claimed to have found a shoebox filled with newspaper clippings and letters related to this case. According to the caller, there was something else in the box that had been referenced in the original newspaper articles, but they didn't say what the item was. Police were never able to track down the anonymous caller, and the mystery remained. What was he running from? Who is this mysterious Dawn person? 
Why did someone try to convince his mother that he was still alive and well? Whoever he was and whatever he had done, Artemis Ogletree died a horrible death that he didn't deserve. After so long, this case is unlikely to ever be solved. Justice for what was done to Artemis will never be served. This case has fascinated true crime enthusiasts for generations and will continue to do so for generations to come. We would love to hear some of your theories. You can contact us through our website, crimeandconjure.com. No crime should go unpunished, and every victim needs to get the justice they deserve. Cold Case Investigative Research Institute assists families and law enforcement with unsolved homicides, missing persons, and kidnapping cases. This one-of-a-kind band of all-volunteer crime fighters are students and nationally recognized experts, such as profilers, detectives, crime analysts, prosecutors, and crime scene investigators. Their main goal is to find justice for cold case victims. They are driven by genuine desire to use knowledge, talents, and skills to find justice for victims and aid law enforcement in solving cold cases, where the perpetrators have eluded the long arm of the law. To learn more or get involved, visit coldcasecrimes.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Steph and Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram, at crimeandconjurepodcast, for our question of the week. Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today we want to talk about muscovite. This is a mystical stone with a strong ability to stimulate awareness of the higher self. Used in scrying, this visionary stone links to the highest spiritual realms. Your mental capacity can become more clear and even expand when working with this crystal. It's also believed to activate many unique psychic abilities. It's said that muscovite can allow your brain waves to ascend and attune to the energies of the gods and reach higher dimensions accessing endless knowledge of yourself and the universe. Well, hell, they should have used one of those to solve this case. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Conjurers, this episode wraps up season two. We want to thank you so much for supporting us on this journey by listening weekly, leaving reviews, and even engaging with us on social media. We'll be taking a bit of a break, but please check back in with us this summer for season three, because we'll be bringing you all new chilling cases you won't want to miss. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.